I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I'm joined today by an author I've admired on Twitter, it's true, for, for many years, and I'm so glad she's here. Bethany C. Morrow is a national bestselling author writing for adult and young adult audiences. She's the author of the novels Mem, A Song Below Water, A Chorus Rises, and So Many Beginnings, A Little Women Remix. She's included on USA Today's list of 100 Black novelists and fiction writers you should read. And her latest novel is called Cherish Farah. Welcome, Bethany. It's so nice to see you. Thank you for having me. So your, your author, I'm starting with your author bio because uh, it begs the question, when you write a book for a YA audience and when you write a book for an adult audience, are you thinking about that beforehand? Do you know that beforehand? Do you have a strategy? Tell me about deciding what goes where. I think it, for me, it's the same as, um, as writing across genres which is that I am allowing the story primarily to dictate that I, if I have a story idea, a concept idea, um, because speculative literary is kind of my home, it can go in two pretty different directions. And it depends on what is true to the, to the characters more than the world or the concept. Um, the characters determine sort of where this, what kind of study this is going to be. Um, with young adult and adult, with Cherish Fair specifically, this is really the only one where I wrote probably about 20 something thousand words, knowing that it could kind of go in either place. But once I determined that it was adult, which for Farah sort of has to be the case, um, I, I really went back and, made her fully herself on the page in, in those earlier scenes. So to me, it, it's more because my target audience for young adult are teenage Black girls and femmes. And it's extremely important to 
give them language and to, um, you know, edify them and let them know that they're seen and that I'm a, uh, I'm aware of them and that, and that these, uh, the way they're gaslit by society is really happening. It's not their imagination. And that's a really difficult place to, or different, sorry, place to write from than when I'm writing adult. I am not taking the same kind of care with the audience um, because I don't have a sort of caregiving feeling toward them, right? Sure. That's not to say like, I don't care about my audience, and I don't <laughs> like, but I don't, feel, I don't feel a responsibility the way that I feel with YA. And it's a responsibility that I take very seriously and that I intentionally accept as a YA writer. So I definitely think that this is the only story that ever had that moment mm-hmm. where, where I was already writing it and thinking, I guess this, this could be upper YA, this could be sort of NA. And I think people are, are seeing the description and thinking it says new adult social horror when really it says new adult as in returning <laughs> to adult. Um, so. Oh, that's very funny. They come um, to it expecting more sex. Is that what? I have new because I'm like you know that really was my only understanding of new adult was like <laughs> YA with sex, um, and as as we know that hasn't really taken off. There isn't really a place in the bookstore for that. So I'm like no no no. It just is telling my readership that this is a return to adult market, um, and that it's a new book. Sorry for any confusion. It's not new adult, <laughs> and it's so interesting because um Cherish and Farah, your your two title uh, <laughs> characters are 17 and so I understand right. that there's a, a wanting to categorize them separately and yet some of the best literature in the world is about right. teenagers so uh, yeah and I always try to remind people like the the age of the protagonist is not how you determine the category of a book and obviously there's a double standard there because clearly a YA book is not going to have a 35 year old protagonist (laughs) but an adult book can have a six-year-old protagonist so you know that's that's not how we determine um who the target audience is this is I, I I try to make that really clear by having it sort of very close set in terms of location you're not seeing them in young adult circumstances you're not seeing them in teenage settings for the most part you see them maybe one time at the academy and it's not in a classroom it's not with their peers it's intentionally you never see them with their peers um so it's that is also a pretty big clue you're not seeing any sort of daily life slice of life even in a fantasy type setting you're you're not seeing them in teenage uh scenarios yeah yeah i i well, let's go back to that. I have questions. <laughs> um, why don't we start with you uh, telling listeners what WGS stands for and what it means? Yes, WGS is one of those things that I know for a fact. It because I'm writing from, you know, I'm I'm writing from a, a, a demographic that is not the power majority, and therefore all of our socialization hasn't been bent around making you sort of literate or competent in my cultural and lived experience. So I know for a fact that people are going to 
completely misunderstand it. Um, and that's kind of on them, you know, context is. matter, learn to read. Um, but WGS is something that Farah calls cherish. And in order to understand what anything means in this book, I think you have to accept who these characters actually are and not who you are familiar with and not what is the easiest way to sort of like define them for yourself. Otherwise you're gonna miss most of the story. It means white girls spoiled. And it's very, it's a very sociological observation that Farah is making of Cherish. It's said in a way that if you're talking to somebody who has this void she's talking about, the person hearing it can think that it's sort of like a term of endearment and it's like, it's hilarious because you act like a spoiled white girl, but you're a black girl. But the thing about that is you it, being a spoiled white girl isn't about how you act. It's about how the world treats you, how the world responds to you. Race isn't about like a personal heritage. It's about a social experience, social and, you know, financial historical capital comes along with that. So if you're a black girl, you aren't a spoiled white girl, no matter how spoiled you are. And what she's talking about is the fact that in this transracial family, which means that Cherish is a black girl, but her, both of her parents are white, they have, they're very progressive and they're very socially aware and they've intentionally sort of set certain things in her life to edify and affirm her blackness. But at the same time, they have inbred her with that same coddled to the point of incompetence, um, that privilege to the point of almost like uselessness of just being completely out of touch and completely blind and, and, and able to live your entire life in a deluded state, um, which is obviously the, it's, it's why I don't know why white people aren't more upset about white supremacy uh, because that's what it results in. Um, it's it's a arrested development type of thing. And so she's, Farah is stating, I know this about you. I know that you have this arrested development. I know that you are missing something that makes it impossible for you to clearly see even things that are right in front of you. And for Farah, that's very attractive because she's the type of person who likes control. She likes ownership and she realizes that she's in a unique position as the only other black girl in this community to really have a stake on Cherish and for Cherish to really not understand why she is so dependent on Farah. So, I mean, it's a pretty devastating thing that, that Farah is saying, but every time we hear it, it's sort of playfully said. <laughs> um, so it might take a minute to realize that like, that's not, it's clearly not a good thing and it's clearly something you're taking advantage of and, and why is no one Sort of, but we all we always see privilege as like this positive, desirable thing, and Farah knows that that's not actually the case. Yeah, you it, at one point she calls it infantilization, which I mean that's cuddle, but yeah, yeah, it's I mean she she's the thing is that Farah also is very aware of other people's awareness and what they understand, and she can sometimes say exactly what she means, knowing or trusting that this person or these people don't aren't going to get it anyway. Which leads me to my next question. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about Farah as a narrator. And she, she seems when we first meet her incredibly calculated mm -hmm. and she always needs to have a strategy. That makes sense. Um, and how much of this 
is rightly defensive and how much of this is a little paranoid? Well, I have never been, I've never sort of been shy about saying that she is actually psychopathic. So all of it is based on that. Her, you know, you can't be this this person and this and have this sort of ongoing constant strategy. She never gets tired. Right. She never gets tired of strategizing. She never, you know, for for most of us, there's going to be some sort of like cognitive balance that we carry. And you get to a point and it's like, I don't have the energy for this right now. I just need to be a normal person. I'm going to have to trust people because I don't have the bandwidth not to. She never gets there She that because this is really a, who she is. Um, and so the beginning of the book, we find that she is experiencing something she's not used to, which isn't an exhaustion cognitively, but it's a literal sort of physiological response to the stress that she's under, which her stress is, is simply losing control, is simply no longer being in control of, of her daily surroundings and life. Um, but it's really important that, that people not try to sort of um, infantilize her just because she's 17 years old. And it goes to something that, that happens early in the book where she is eavesdropping on her mother, Nicole, and Cherish's mother, Brienne. And Cherish's, or her mother is trying to warn Cherish's mother that something's wrong with Farah, and, you know, and that her mother is sort of afraid of or for her, you're not necessarily sure which one, but there's definitely a sense that she is absolutely trying to warn this woman of something. And Brienne shuts her down because this is this really progressive and liberal white woman who's raising her own black daughter and is like, it's so important and sees all the ways the black girls are you know restricted or reduced or, or stereotyped and just is not willing to do that except she absolutely is she's just not willing to see them any other way than the way she sees them so having decided who cherishes her girl her daughter is this darling gentle very fragile delicate person who just you have to just pour the world out for her um, she cannot conceive of a black girl being different than that. And that in itself is a problem, obviously. Um, so it's really important to not just have sort of knee-jerk reactions to stereotyping, not just have, you know, and not to do this sort of like pendulum swing where it's like, okay, all black girls are villains or all black girls are victims. Um, because Farah's Farah. Farah's just Farah. In the in the first few pages, when we first meet her, she refers to a character as Nicole Turner, and it takes a little while for it to uh, catch on that that is in fact what she calls her mother, which is her mom. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course because we know that you're doing something in this world, we have to kind of figure out like, well, is Nicole Turner the villain? Right. You need to be frightened. <laughs> right. It's yeah. It's, the thing that I love about social horrors and especially social horrors in the vein of get out, which is, you know, what was specifically something that my agent was like, would you ever be interested in something like that? And of course I said, no. 
and then I did it. Um, but the 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 thing that I love about that is there's a story that you will never see until you get to the end of the book. And therefore there has to be the story that you think you're following. Mm-hmm. And building that story is so interesting and is is really, I mean, that's the fun part is. I'm sure in in other thrillers or in mysteries or something, there's like the red herrings and the reversals and everything. But this whole story is like the red herring. <laughs> like the whole story up until the end is whatever the reader decides they think is happening. Like whatever you think the story is and, and sort of anticipating that also obviously having things that I do very much want people to understand and challenging people's perceptions. Um, but it was just really fun to, to have a character who's not a blank slate, because I think that's the easiest way to do something like this is like, okay, well, I want you to know that this person is the victim or is it wrong? So I'm going to make them totally blank and you can just sort of insert whatever ideas you want on top of them, whatever makes it easiest to go through this world. And I'm like, no, because sometimes multiple things are happening and she's not a blank slate. You have to decide who she is. And because she's your narrator, you have to decide who everybody else is and if they are who she says they are. And that is something you have to do all the way through the book until, until you find out what is actually happening. Yeah, it's that thing where you have to figure out like, what does Farron know? What does she right. think she knows? Right. She's, uh, what does she know that she, what does she not know that she doesn't know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, and especially when you've got a character who is very convinced that she is the smartest person in the room, um, then you have to figure out if she is or not. And, and it's also, I think, I hope that it requires letting go of strict binaries because if you underestimate Vera, <laughs> that is also a problem. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and so this brings me back to a little bit about the, we don't see, see uh, Cherish and Farah in, um, kind of regular teen settings. Right. And I wanted to ask you more about that because I it, one of the things that I um, wrote in the margin at one point was like college, job, like <laughs> future plans. They're living in the moment. Yeah. Tell me about writing that. There's a, there's a level of, I think there's a level of privilege pardon me, that um, allows you to live in the, mo- the moment and feel completely secure in, not that these things will never be something you have to deal with, but you get to decide when you deal with them and when you have to, you know, they're literally still in school. They're in their, what, junior year of high school when the story starts and you would not you would not know that it's not it's not the center of their world it just isn't um even when they go they leave uh cherish's birthday party and they go like to the movies with the boys that's also not the center of their life so you don't even go with them you're you're with them in the car and then you don't even really see what happens when they're there that is that's them going through the motions of teendom 
And because it's from Farah's perspective, it's Farah going through the, mo the motions of, of teendom. And so it's like, this isn't important. Yeah, there, there's like a point where it. she said she cosplays teenage dumb, which is right. Like, like she, she's, she's really saying, I'm pretending to be a teenage girl, and and you see that because any moment where where you would see her in a setting, particularly surrounded by other teenagers, we just sort of like, and then next, what happened next? <laughs> you know, it's just not important to her. That's not where her energy goes. She's not sparring with those people. She's she's not challenged by those people. And so Why? Why it's not the focus of her of her life. So let's talk a little bit about Cherish and Farah's relationship and how you develop it. Um, because from the semi-beginning. Farrah says that Cherish is the only person she can still love when she hates her, which is a really like unconditional love just for the best friend. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and also, and you know, what's interesting, and this is why I say it's really important to, to accept and allow nuance and, and layers and multiple things to be true at the same time, because it really wasn't hard to fashion their relationship. Um, anybody who's been a teenage girl and had best friends and realized that those are the most intense and sometimes toxic relationships that you will ever have, hopefully, um, it's, it's not difficult. There are so many stories in the, just in the real world of what teenage girls do together and for each other and there's always this sense even though you don't see them in teenage circumstances there's always this sense of defending and asserting this attachment as though it's under threat and if you're paying attention it's never under threat it's actually like super supported right like their parents are very supportive. The, the boys understand like these two people go together and that's just it but they're they have almost a competitive, um, it's just that intensity that comes with, yes, that what is biologically happening to you at that age and, and just how the world, taken in a larger sense, and I don't feel like this is something that I intentionally deal with in the book, but I think that just as a, as a former student of sociology and also as a woman, I think that you take these relationships so intensely seriously at a time when the world refuses to take girls seriously. The things that teenage girls like, the, the things that teenage girls go through. I mean, from a quite young age, we're going through the equivalent of a serious surgery every month if we, are, if we uh, have a, a reproductive cycle. So, you know, you're experiencing things and then at the same time, of course, your complete your chemical imbalance, which is just natural for that for that developmental stage, it's a it's ridiculous. It's like ridiculous that we send people to school, that we expect all of these routine. This, you know, we're talking about young teen girls, and so at a time when the whole world seems to refuse to take you in particular seriously and the things that matter to you and happen to you seriously, these relationships that are exclusively between two people in that same demographic, I feel like can become so intense and so 
insistent because of that. And there's a constant affirming to each other and to the outside world. This is the most important person in my life. We are the most important people to each other. No one can get between us. And, you know, and there's a, there's a troubling aspect of it. it. I see sort of regularly, I hate to say it like this is going to sound so bad, but even just, you know, having experience it myself and also having been a substitute teacher and all of this other stuff, you're sometimes surprised that people don't take these things more seriously. Um, Cause some of those breakups are so much scarier than like a romantic breakup or something. Um, so it's, in that way, that part was actually just from being alive and just from like seeing those kind of relationships and there's, and that, and the fact that it fits so neatly into sort of a social genre should tell you something, I guess, Um, because Cherish is similarly sort of uh, serious about this, about this relationship and about this and, and about this definition and how it's characterized. And from all accounts, obviously she is not, she does not have the same sort of uh, pathology at, that Farah has, and yet she approaches this relationship the same way. Yeah, I, I think the best example of that um, in the book over and over again is this ritual they have yes. that requires more trust than I, don't, I think I've ever put in, anyone (laughs) right because why would you (laughs) so tell tell me about that so they do something called a baptism and you see it very early in the book the first time you see the uh the baptism is when they break into ferris foreclosed home they break into the backyard uh in the pool that they have always done this ritual in and it involves getting undressed and getting into the pool and one of them floating on their back and the other person standing up next to them. And first they draw a cross on the floor, just early things that should make you go, what's happening? (laughs) Um, And so they, you know, they draw the cross and the first time they do this ritual, you kind of see how, how sort of intentionally indulgently long this can take because they're letting the water fall from their fingers onto the person until it runs out. And, but the point is at some point they sort of silently understand, okay, now it's going to happen. Whoever's laying on their back in the pool crosses their arms over their chest and the other person slowly submerges the, the laying party under water. And the point is that they will not resist and they will not try to come up until the standing person allows them to come up. And obviously we see that it's intentionally, I understand that I'm holding your breath. I understand that because the first person who does it, Farah is um, when she when she baptizes Cherish, she says that she's antagonizingly taking deep breaths because of course Cherish can't. And Cherish does not resist. She doesn't get upset. She doesn't fight back at all. And she waits until Farah decides she can breathe again. And this is something that they've obviously done for years. And it proves again, it proves to them that regardless of what happens, and even as you start to feel like Cherish 
obviously is the closest person to Farrah. She sees things about Farrah, despite her infantilized personality, despite her arrested development, it becomes clear that she does see certain things. And the question might become, why doesn't she, why isn't she afraid or why doesn't she do something or tell someone? And you have to understand this relationship is the center of Cherish's life too. She has decided this is, this is a closed conversation. This is the most important person in my life period. And how far do you go then to, to affirm that and remain loyal to that when you've literally been putting your life in this person's hands for years? Um, <laughs> and, and I think it also works so um, interestingly with Farah's need for control. It's mm-hmm. kind of like, this is the one uh, moment when she lets someone else make decisions for her right and she knows she knows what that means she knows how big of a thing that is and therefore she I think that the times that you hear her because you you hear it pretty early where she just in passing says stuff like I could trip her like they're going down the stairs and she's just like I could trip her I could push her I could pinch her I could put a nail under her foot like you know any I think that for her she knows because she knows exactly who she is and what her pathology is she knows what a gift it is to cherish that she gives her this type of control and so if you don't feel that it's being acknowledged or honored that's an offense obviously if you are somebody who is very much about control and you allow someone else to have control and they don't respect that, then that's upsetting. (laughs) It's upsetting. Um, (laughs) Bethany, this has been so lovely. Before we go, would you like to recommend some books for us, please? I would love to recommend some books that I too would like to read because I am having a little bit of pandemic trouble, a lot of it actually, of pandemic trouble, finishing books, even books that I start and I think, oh, this is amazing. And then my brain goes do to do and wanders off. Um, but I just got, I believe it's called Half Blown Rose. It's the new Lisa Cross Smith novel. And I specifically begged for it. So I am going to force my brain to let me have that book. Um, I also just received the new essay collection, the newly published essay collection um, of Zora Neale Hurston called You Don't Know Us Negroes, which has a foreword or an introduction um, partially by Henry Louis Gates Jr. There's someone else and I don't want to misspeak. Um, And I have read a couple of the essays from that and just absolutely, absolutely beautiful. Right around her passing, I started reading through All About Love by Bell Hooks also. Um, I think that nonfiction is helping because because they have little bites that are sort of thematically connected, but but not dependent necessarily on the surrounding material. And that's helping me feel productive in reading something to completion. yeah, those are those are the things that I'm excited about that I have in my possession. And I'm sure as soon as we get off, I'm going to remember 62 other things. <laughs> um, there's so much good literature coming out right now. So um, if you follow me on Twitter, which is at BC Morrow, hopefully I will be, as soon as I leave here, remember everything else that I want to tell you, I'll put it on Twitter. <laughs> perfect, perfect. 
Well, thank you so much, Bethany. This was great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.